this morning, I'd ask if you would, once again, bow your heads and pray with me as we begin. Father in heaven, we do gather here with great anticipation each week about what you will do, because each week you do perform a miracle. You show up in the midst of us. You show up to encourage us, to empower us, to change us, to be more like your Son. You send your Spirit into our hearts to gather us together with all the saints around the world to proclaim your glory. Father, I pray that all that we say, think, and do this morning would bring glory to your name. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all the hearts assembled here would be truly pleasing in your sight, our God, who has reigned forever and ever. Amen. Well, as I said at the beginning of the service, we're in the second week of the series we've titled Life in Babylon, where we're looking at Daniel and his three friends and how Judah has been carried into captivity in this multicultural, polytheistic society called Babylon, and how they can bring a redemptive influence. And that's what we've said about this series. And what we say about the book of Daniel is that Daniel's story helps us understand how to bring redemptive influence to a society whose culture and values are different from our own. That's what we face here in the United States. Here's what we face throughout the world. There are values, and as Dan pointed out last week, these values are changing constantly, and they're changing quickly, and you don't have to be around very long to see that happen. And so how do we, how can we take a chapter literally out of Daniel's book to make a difference in this society? Last week, Dan was here and showed us how Daniel decided to do that. They realized that they were no longer in Judah. The buildings were different. The food was different. The opulence was different. The the things they worshiped were different. And Daniel and his friends drew a line and said, you know what? There's a slippery slope here. If we eat their food, if we we go down this path, then we're just going to be more and more dependent upon Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar wanted, people to depend on him and, and bow down and worship him. And so with God's guidance, They decided, you know what, we're not going to eat of the food. And so they did so, and as a result of that, they were stronger and better looking than any of the others that ate the food. And it proved something to the people of Babylon that God could do a miracle, and it proved to those four young men that God was still with them. And it emboldened their witness. And it leads us into the second chapter, which precludes the chapter that we're going to talk about tonight, which gives us context for today's talk, and that is Daniel chapter 2, where Just about a year later, King Nebuchadnezzar's having this dream. He's having this recurring dream every night, and it's troubling him, and he doesn't know what it means. He can't figure it out. And so he calls in all the magicians and all the different, you know, soothsayers and everybody to come in and says, I'm having this dream, and I don't know what it means. Can you tell me what this dream is and how to interpret it? And they're going, sure, tell us what the dream is, and we'll interpret it. And he's like, no, 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 that's not the deal. You first tell me what it is I'm dreaming, and then interpret the dream. And they're like, King Nebuchadnezzar, no one can do that. Tell us what the dream is, and we'll interpret it. And he's like, no, no, no. If you are what you say you are, you should be able to tell me what the dream is and then interpret it. And in fact, if you can't do that, then I'm going to put you all to death. I'm going to kill every one of you because you're useless to me. And there's fear, and Edith goes out, and Daniel hears about it. And Daniel says to the one of the guards, go tell King Nebuchadnezzar there's one that can answer his dream. They can interpret it for him. So the guard goes and tells Nebuchadnezzar and comes back and says, there's a young man that says that he can do this. And so they bring Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, so you can, interp- you can tell me what I'm dreaming, and you can interpret it. 
And he says, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, King of kings, no man can interpret that dream. No man can understand and discern that dream. But there is a God who can make it known, and he has made it known to me. It says, the dream King Nebuchadnezzar is having is he is seeing this vision of this large statue of a man. And this statue has the head of gold and the breast and arms of silver and the body of bronze and legs of iron and its feet are made of clay and a mixture of iron. And in the dream, O King Nebuchadnezzar, there's a rock from outside that comes and crashes against the feet of this man and the man tumbles down and is destroyed into pieces. But this rock becomes a mountain and grows to inhabit the entire world and this rock, this kingdom, will last forever and ever, O King Nebuchadnezzar. And at that point, he had his attention because it's exactly the dream Nebuchadnezzar was having. And he says, and here's what that dream means, O King Nebuchadnezzar. Your kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, is represented by the head of the statue. But your kingdom will not last. It will be overtaken, and there will be another kingdom that comes, the kingdom of silver. And that kingdom will rule, but for a time... Because another kingdom will come as represented by the kingdom of bronze, and that kingdom will destroy the other kingdom. And they will rule, but again, they will not last. There will be the kingdom of iron that comes, and iron crushes everything. And they will rule. But because all of these kingdoms are based upon a foundation of a mixture of iron and clay, a rock from the outside will come and destroy all of these kingdoms. And this kingdom is the kingdom of God that will rule forever and ever, and will not be an, there will, that kingdom will not be an end. And King Nebuchadnezzar is undone, and he's flabbergasted that this God has made this known to Daniel. And he issues this edict. He says, no one in, the, in Babylon can say a thing against the God of Daniel. No one should say a thing against the God of Daniel because what he has done this day and what he has revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar, lest they be put to death. And it brings us to chapter 3. And we see that this is some time later, and chances are it's after King Nebuchadnezzar has gone back to Jerusalem and laid it flat, and he is the strongest kingdom there, the strongest empire in the entire region, possibly in the entire world. And King Nebuchadnezzar has long forgotten the dream, or maybe the dream is still in his mind that produced this fear in his heart that his kingdom wouldn't end. And so he erects this 90-foot statue completely made of gold. Not partly gold, but all of gold. To sort of say, I think I can change the future. I think I can make a difference. I think Babylon can last forever if I just make it so. And he tells everybody in the kingdom they must bow down to this statue. And that's what he does. He erects this large statue. And in the text, it doesn't say that it's an image of King Nebuchadnezzar, but it's clear that this image is a representation of his power, of his glory. Because it says that this statue represents the gods of Babylon, but it also represents the power and majesty of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's saying to everyone, you must bow down to this. You must bow down to me. Because it is in this statue that you'll find your security. And this is the edict. He says, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now here's the picture. 
as we read later, we'll find. You have this large 90-foot statue here on the plains of Dura, and assembled very close is this big fiery furnace. And he uses this fiery furnace as the impetus for saying, just in case I wasn't clear, this will be your fate if you don't bow down to this idol, if you don't bend the knee. How many are Game of Thrones fans? Anybody? Spoiler alert. Last week, not next week, this last week, same thing happens. Everybody must bend the knee to the one king. And this week there's a young queen who says bend the knee and behind her is this big fiery dragon that says if you don't bend the knee, this is your fate. That's exactly what they're facing. This had to have been just some big production because they had orchestras there and there was going to be music playing. Everybody was there. The legislature, the judiciary, every cabinet member, everyone was assembled. So that everyone would know that King Nebuchadnezzar is great and he says, just in case you're having second thoughts, this is your fate unless you bow down. And so the music plays and everybody bows to the king's statue, except three young Jewish boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the magicians who couldn't interpret the dream, and the ones that were envious of the Jewish boys, run to King Nebuchadnezzar and say, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, there's three guys, they're not bowing down, they're not bowing down, they're not bowing down, they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't. And he's furious that they would challenge his kingship. And so he calls these three young men before him. And he says to them, the edict has been issued that you must bow down to this God, to this idol that represents the gods of Israel and the power of Babylon. And if you won't do it, you're going to be thrown into this furnace. And let me just make sure you understand this. There is no God that can deliver you from my hand. What did King Nebuchadnezzar just do? He just went against what he said in Daniel 1. That anyone who speaks against the God of Daniel should be cut to pieces. And King Nebuchadnezzar speaks against that God and says, there is no God that can deliver you from my hands. Not against my God. There's no God that can deliver you from my gods. There's no God that can deliver you from me. Elevating himself as a God. And just so you're clear, that's, that's where you're headed if you don't do it. And they say to King Nebuchadnezzar, if we're thrown in that blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. And then they go on to say this, and even if he doesn't, they're not so presumptuous as to speak for what God will do what God can do. Even if he doesn't, O King Nebuchadnezzar, even if you do throw us into the fire and we are killed, we're not going to bow down to your idol. Because you and Babylon and this idol are not God. And they don't bow down. And he's furious. He loses his mind. He says, tie him up, bring soldiers, tie him up, heat the furnace up seven times hotter which is saying, as hot as it can get. And everybody's still standing around. This is going to be a spectacle. He is going to demonstrate to everyone the power and might of King Nebuchadnezzar. 
And usually they would have stripped them down and thrown them into fire, but he's so furious, he says, just wrap them up the way they are and tie them tight. And he gets, brings his strongest soldiers and they throw him into the fire. And the fire is so hot that the soldiers that throw him into the fire are killed themselves. And I'm sure King Nebuchadnezzar's sitting there all proud and waiting for everybody to go, oh. And everybody goes, oh. Because they're not killed. And King Nebuchadnezzar himself goes, oh. As he looks and he says these words, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw to the fire? He has to jump up and just be in amazement that they're still walking around in the fire, but there's not just three men. There's a fourth man walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, all of them are. And the fourth man looks like a son of the gods. And King Nebuchadnezzar has to be shaken. And he yells, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out here. And they come out. And when they come out, there's no smell of smoke, fire on them, a hair is singed on their head, not one of their piece of clothing is burnt or singed. And they come out, and King Nebuchadnezzar is undone. And he's amazed. And he says these words, starting in, chapter, in verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve the nation or language who say anything or worship any god except for their own god. Therefore I issue a decree that the people of my nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their homes burned and into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Through these three defiant young men who calmly say, as the king gets angrier and angrier, there is but one God, one God alone. Through their obedience to that God, not to bow down and serve any other gods, God uses their testimony, their bold witness, to influence a culture much like our own. And it redeems, and it influences and changes the whole culture through their bold witness. Now here in the United States of America today, we don't have to fear being thrown into a fiery furnace. We can witness, we can gather here together freely without fear of being tormented or killed. That's doesn't happen today in the United States. There's no fear of retribution, but that doesn't mean it's not happening today. A recent study said from 2000 to 2010, around the world, Christians are continuing today to be martyred for their faith. And in that time period, 270 Christians are martyred each day for their faith, for refusing to bow down to renounce the one true God that doesn't happen here. It's hard to kind of bring that into context here. And here in the United States of America, we erect monuments and statues, but we're not required to bow down to them or to serve them and serve them alone out of fear of losing our life or being thrown into prison. But that's happened throughout history. 
powerful men have erected statues of themselves to represent their power. And with fear, they have ruled over men and women and said, if you will not bow to what I say, you will be killed. You will be tortured. And from fear, people bow down and worship these men or representations of these rulers. And it continues to happen throughout the world today. But again, it doesn't happen here in the United States. No one's calling us to bow down to a statue of anyone. But just because there aren't 90-foot statues, and just because there isn't a threat of death, doesn't mean that we don't have idols, that we don't have gods in our culture. The famous reformer Martin Luther put it this way. He said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. And we can say with all confidence that this society, this culture, has many gods. And if we're honest, we can say we too have put things on pedestals that are not truly God. And we've confided and put our hearts in those things. And we know that even though there's not fear of, of death, there is fear. Fear of being ostracized from groups. Fear of losing friends. Fear from being evicted from jobs or you name it if we go against the current trend, if we go against what is put on that pedestal. And make it clear, just because we don't erect these idols doesn't mean that we don't worship them. We all worship. The question is, what is it that we worship? Famous American author David Foster Wallace, in a commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, he himself an agnostic, not a believer, says this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that they pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. How true. But see, these aren't new words. These words were penned by Solomon himself in the book of Ecclesiastes, who in through his own life tried to find meaning and purpose in all the things of this world, putting other things up on the pedestal to try and find purpose and try and find hope. And he said at the end of his life, the conclusion of the matter is, fear God and love his and obey his commands. Fear God only and obey his commands. That is where true purpose and meaning, because everything else Every other spiritual type or any other kind of God will only eat you alive. And the same holds true today. But it doesn't keep us from trying. Because the culture influences our thoughts and our behavior. And we as a church are called to influence the culture. To be in the world but not of the world. And to worship the one true God. But society... Our culture puts other things up on this pedestal and they change constantly. And over the last hundred years, this is one of those gods that have been put up before us. It's science that says science alone is where truth resides. Science alone is the only thing that's objective, that's looking after the interest of man to find the truth. And when you stand up and say, wait a minute, there are things science can't explain. There are many of things that science can explain. But there are some things that science is not equipped to do. That God is God alone, and he did create everything. 
And to stand up and do that in the face of somebody who believes in science is also standing up and being willing to be pointed at and saying, well, you're just simple-minded. You're just closed-minded. You're just arrogant. You're uninformed. You've got your head in the sand. We live in an intelligent society, and you continue to want to live in the past. And in the face of that kind of ridicule and kind of criticism, sometimes and oftentimes we keep our opinions to ourselves. And we're afraid of science. We're afraid of the idol. Or maybe we're afraid of the furnace. And so we keep our mouths shut. And just to say, there's nothing to be afraid of that science finds and that they can prove. There's plenty of things that science theorizes about that haven't been proven, but everything that science has proven converges with Scripture. We don't need to be afraid. Because God is God alone. And we erect other idols, like race. We see that just a week ago. When one race stands up and says, this is the most predominant race, this is the favored nation. And we raise one race above another. And when you're standing in a group of people, maybe of your own race, talking about a different race, and they talk about the other race in a derogatory fashion, you want to stand up, and in your mind you're saying, God's word says that God gives... What am I trying to say? God gives importance. He gives value to every human life. Not just to one race, to all races. But in this group of people, to speak up like that, sometimes you feel a little bit like, maybe this isn't the time, because I'm alone here. And so we back off and we don't speak. And we allow this other God to be worshipped. Or maybe it's wealth where we buy into the fact that it's wealth where we'll find our security, it's wealth we'll put our trust in, it's where, where we'll find true happiness. And for us to say, wait a minute, that's not where God promises to find security, and wealth will only disappoint, wealth will only eat you alive if you put your hope there. And to say that is, again, inviting ridicule and criticism, and maybe it's something that we've even erected in our own life, and we don't want to tear that down because that would mean tearing down our own idols. And there's pressure to worship that idol. There's also the idol of religion. We hold our religion up to be the one thing, and we fight to defend that religion. We fight to make sure that everyone bows down to that religion. We see that just this last week, where in the name of religion, people are killed and murdered all across this country in the name of religion. And throughout history, is replete with examples like that, and Christianity is one of those that can, be, that can be laid at the foot of. We've done the same thing because we've forgotten God's example. We say, bow down or die. And the final one that I want to bring to your attention is tolerance. We see that that's one of the most recent we see in our culture. It's a culture of tolerance where we tolerate all faiths. We, re- we tolerate all religions. And I echo that. We should tolerate them. We should welcome them. We should embrace them as people because they're not just religions, they're people. And all people have value. But that doesn't mean we don't speak truth to all people, that there isn't truth, that we buy into the fact that every road leads to the same place. We need to speak up and we need to defend the one true faith. The thing about the tolerance movement is it's tolerant with you as long as you are tolerant of their views. The moment you step up and say there's one God, their tolerance quickly becomes very intolerant. 
And it's because of that that we oftentimes remain quiet because we don't want to be seen as closed-minded. We don't want to be pointed out. We don't want to be mocked. We don't want to be laughed at. We don't want to be the sad Christian in the room. But we see in this story of Nebuchadnezzar something that happened with these three men that in spite of the furnace, they didn't bow down. So my question to all of us this morning is, what's on our pedestal? What's on your pedestal? What is it that you've raised up and are worshiping? Or what's raised up in front of you and you're afraid to not bow down to? Because as you look, you see this fiery furnace. You see the furnace over here that's keeping you from not bowing down. Maybe it's friends. You're afraid you're going to lose friendships. You're afraid you're going to be removed from this group of people. You're going to, remove your, you're going to no longer have influence. You're afraid what everybody's going to say about you. You're afraid of what you're going to lose. It's the furnace that keeps you bowing down to these false idols. That happened that day on the plains of Dura. There were some that said they didn't even see the furnace because they loved Babylon. Babylon was great. You want to bow down? Awesome. Anytime. Because I love my life here. I love Babylon. Things are great right now. But there were some that maybe things weren't so great for, things weren't going so well, and that furnace was like, well, things aren't great, but that's worse, and so I'll bow down. But yet there were three young men who said, yeah, even in face of death, I can't bow down. I have to, I have to worship the one true God. And we see here on the plains of Dura something that happens oftentimes in our culture. We see people that are so afraid of the fires of hell that they bow down to the one true God, not out of love, but out of fear of the fire. And Scripture tells us that there's no fear in love. That Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we bow down to God, not because we have to out of the flames of hell, but because we get to out of the love of Jesus Christ. We bow down to the one true God and Him alone because of the love and the faithfulness and the and the promise that he has for us, that he's always been faithful, that he will always be with us. And this fire represents that God just didn't put out the fire. He actually came into the fire with them and delivered them in the fire. And it's in the fire where we experience Christ's freedom. It's in the fire where their chains were unbound. And it's when we obey and we refuse, in the face of a fiery furnace, to worship and witness to the one true God. God shows up, and you experience peace, you experience joy, you experience love in the face of the furnace. And that's exactly what they did, and that's exactly what we've been called to do in this culture, to influence this culture, to make a difference. And back in chapter 2, this is what Daniel says. This is what's going to happen in the next kingdom to come. He says, in the time of those kings, those all four kings represented by that statue, the God of heaven will set a kingdom that will never end, be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is not of this world, as he stood before Pilate. He says, if it were of this world, then my people would fight for me. But it's not of this world. And you would have no authority over me if, the, if God himself had not given it to you. And he says something else interesting here. He says, this kingdom will not be of another people. What he's saying here is this will not be a nation on the earth. 
this will not be a nation bound by borders. There is no sacred nation on earth. There is a sacred people. There is a chosen people. There is no chosen nation that ended with Israel. And that kingdom is found throughout the world. All races, all colors, all languages. And that kingdom will have one king. And it's the king that is ruled forever and ever and will rule forever and ever. And he is the one alone that is trustworthy and true. And we say with the psalmist, I trust in God and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Can they kill the body? Yes, they can kill the body. Can they mock us? Yes, they can mock us. But I am a follower of the one true God. You know, when they stood in the furnace, they were not alone. They had each other, but also this fourth man that was in the furnace. Most scholars believe this fourth man is the pre-incarnate Christ, actually standing in the fire with them. He doesn't put the fire out. We see a true example of God with us in the fire. And Jesus comes, and he unbounds their hands. And when Nebuchadnezzar calls him out. The three men come out, but there's one left in the fire. Jesus. A foreshadowing of what would happen later in his life when he would come into the world as a little boy and he would die the death for the entire world and he would remain in the fire to die that death so that we wouldn't have to endure the flames of the second furnace. That we don't have to be afraid of that second furnace because he paid the price for that. And he's called us to stand up as bold witnesses in this culture and profess him to be the one true God. To be a witness like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego against the flames of the furnace, to profess him as the one true God in face of ridicule, in face of mockery, we stand up and say, what can mere mortals do to me? And when we do that, we will get a glimpse of what the one true God can do through the witness of simple people. who boldly go where a lot of people don't want to go and proclaim the truth that sometimes is mocked today. But as it's been throughout history, the Christian witness, modeled after the love of Jesus, continues to undo people. And how could you continue to live so humbly? How can you live as you do in, in the face of all of this? It's what undid the Roman Empire. When they martyred all those Christians in the Colosseum, they remarked, why are they singing? Why are they full of joy? They couldn't understand. It undid the Roman people that Christians would die that way. And it's the same way forward today. We need to go forward with the love of Jesus Christ. It's through his love that the world will be changed. It's through not bowing down to false idols, but following Jesus with his example, looking, living, loving more like him so that we can have a redemptive influence in this culture. That's God's plan for his people, for his church, is that we would change the world. And we would do that together. And that is why we say, long as there's breath in our bodies, we're going to say, get into a small group. Because we don't want you to do this alone. We want to encourage you. We want to come alongside of you. I need you to encourage me in face of these kind of fears. To remind me that, you know what, you're not alone. That's why groups are so important, so that we can be reminded each week and daily 
that we're not alone, that we have a God who's with us in the fire, that will not forsake us. He will not leave us. And he longs for us to join him in his mission to make a difference in this world, to change this culture by the love of Jesus Christ. I pray that each of you would join us in that mission each and every day by God's grace. Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's Word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about our relationship with Christ or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or a growth group? Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T L C the number four, and the letter U, dot org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.